encourage you to grab your Bibles and open them to Philippians chapter 2. This morning, in some ways, I might be a little bit slow. I'm recovering from that bug that's kind of going around, um, but I'm so happy to be with you. Uh, Back in my college ministry days, my youth and college ministry days, I once had an opportunity to preach multiple services to uh, to you know what we love to call in youth ministry big church, um, and uh, I remember someone coming up to me. I didn't know the guy uh, very well, um, but one of the things he said to me, he he uh, put his hand on my shoulder, um, and and he had said this morning, David. Regardless of how you feel, it's more important about what God wants to say, um, and that forever was such an encouragement to me because that is so true. So. Uh, regardless of how I feel this morning, it's more important what God wants to say, and that's why we go to his word. And so this morning, I encourage you, grab your Bible. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. Today, we are continuing a very short series through the book of Philippians, and we are in chapter 2 today. We're just examining a few verses here and there of of each chapter of the first three chapters of Philippians And uh, next Sunday, for Resurrection Sunday, we will be in chapter 3, looking at verses 8 through 10, and then we'll be back in the Gospel of John um, for the rest of uh, this year. And if you know the pace of how we go through books of the Bible here and how I preach, then you know probably for next year as well. Um, But in Philippians here, one thing I noted last week in the beginning of this short series was that this letter is written by Paul with a focus on the gospel and how that changes everything. That really in the midst of his imprisonment, this letter to the church in Philippi is overflowing with joy and thanksgiving. And something that Paul is very intentional about over and over and over again in his letters is the need for us to both understand and apply important truths. And so it's not just about what you know, it's about who you know and how you are applying that truth. And so in this chapter, Paul will say some similar things that he said before in chapter one, but in different ways. And really at the heart of driving home a very critical point. And see, in the previous chapter, Paul was defining the the purpose and the point of life. And he said earlier in verse 21 of chapter one, to live is Christ. For to me, to live is Christ. And so in light of this, last week, we really examined the topic of of unity, how our life should be defined by the gospel, both individually and together, and how together we are to be standing firm and striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We examine this in verse 27 chapter one. And now Paul is going to repeat some things and he's going to drive home some important things, both by way of reminder and requirement. And so as we read this short section of verse 12 and 13 in Philippians two, we should understand this church as a loving command, not as a tyrant leader or terrible boss or even terrible pastor who says things uh, without care for you and just runs his mouth openly of what he wants. But we should understand Paul's words here as a loving father that's instructing us, telling us to be obedient. And, And even in telling us to be obedient, he has great care in the midst of his instruction. 
And so this is what we will really find in these two verses today, that Paul again and again is bursting with joy for these people and his instruction and his command for them is as a father would lovingly care for his dearest children in the midst of instruction. And so this morning, as we go to the text, what we're going to see in our outline is that we must be obedient to Christ, working out our salvation in awe and reverence as God works in us according to his will. So this morning, if you're taking notes, those are your fill in the blanks and what we'll see from our expositional outline. So we're going to read it in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this morning, I thank you for your word. I pray, God, that as we we come to this time and we seek to apply your word this morning, I pray that we would not seek to define the word, but this morning that the word would define us. We thank you, God, that your word is living and active, and that, God, as we are called to be obedient to Christ and and, and live a life worthy of the manner of the, uh, a life worthy of the gospel, God, I pray that this morning we would be both uh, convicted and encouraged by your word. Pray, God, that we would seek to apply your word and that together we would be unified in your word. So, God, we we ask all of this um, in submission to you. God, I pray that you'd give me strength and energy for this time and that, God, we would look to what you have to say this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we begin, we should not miss the connection between the obedience Jesus showed, which Paul mentions in verse 8 of chapter 2, and the obedience that Paul expected of followers of Jesus, as we see in verse 12. In fact, this is why verse 12 begins by saying, therefore. And I know what you're thinking. We have two verses to get through, and he stopped on the first word. But really, any time that we read that in the Bible, we should go back earlier in the chapter and really ask, what's the therefore, therefore? Why is that there? See, if we go back and we briefly examine the first 11 verses, what we find is that Paul is really explaining the humility and the unity found and founded in Jesus Christ. In fact, in your Bibles, you may have the header that reads, Christ's example of humility, if you have an ESV. Or if you have an NASB, it says, be like Christ. Or even if you have an NIV, it says, imitating Christ's humility. And all of these headers really point us to the example of Christ. And in verses 5 through 8, Paul shows why we must be obedient to Christ. It's because Christ was obedient to the Father. We read in verses five through eight, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." See, after saying this, Paul goes on in verses 9 through 11, as you can see in your Bibles, to really explain how God has exalted Christ above every name. He has exalted Christ above every name so that, as the text says, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so what's the therefore, therefore, in verse 12 of our text today? Well, we see Paul is giving us both the means and the method of our obedience, that it is both in and through Christ Jesus, our Lord, that we obey. See, church, there is no other possible way for us to obey in the Christian life besides through Christ's help and Christ's life. And there is no way to have spiritual life as a Christian unless it is in Christ. And so we should not miss that connection between the obedience Jesus showed in verse eight and the obedience Paul expected of followers of Christ in Philippians 12. See, this is with an instruction and an expectation in mind. In fact, in our outline, some may find the word must to be a little too strong. But really, I want you to know it's an intentional verbiage as it communicates both a demand and a critical call that we must be obedient to Christ. See, I actually intentionally use this language because Paul actually speaks this way. In fact, when he writes in verse 12, he's calling the church to obey, he says, as they always have. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. So here Paul commends their previous obedience and then he encourages them to persevere, to press on in obedience, that the Christian's conduct is a continuous subject. It's a continuous act and Paul continues this subject often in his writing. See, Paul is quick to say that we are not saved by anything we do. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Paul is quick to make this assertion about our salvation, but at the same time, he is often calling the Christian to live out that faith, to persevere in their life that is now in Christ. And it's just as Luther once said, we are saved by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. See, Paul encourages the church in Philippi to continue in their obedience He says, as they have always obeyed. But see, this is not just about how they uh, obey among one another. It's not just uh, about how they obey both uh, among Paul and the fellow believers, but, but how they behave in their absence. How they must be obedient to Christ Jesus. I mean, this is, after all, who your loyalty is to be to as a Christian. This is ultimately who your allegiance must be given to, and that is Christ alone. And so this is why in calling the believers to continue in obedience, Paul continues to say, so now, not 
only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. See, Paul is contending for them to be obedient, to be at work regardless of who is there among them. I mean, it almost seems foolish to imagine someone who kind of plays the role of obedient Christian while in public or in front of a spiritual leader and then goes off to live a disobedient life that makes claims but no confessions of Christ. But see here, Paul admonishes them not to show themselves obedient only in his presence, but also, and even more so, he says, in his absence. And so now this is one of the things we see similar in the language to what Paul said back in chapter one. When we looked at verse 27 last week, he told them to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And he said, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm, united in the gospel. And now in verse 12 of our text today, Paul says, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. See, if he were present, what we know true of Paul, if we read the book of Acts especially, is that he would urge them in person through preaching and exhortation to be unified, to be seeking Christ, to be obedient to the gospel But like a good pastor, like a good apostle, he knows that it is not his presence that matters, but Christ's. It is not the issue if Paul is in the room. What matters and what we should be doing is we should be working out our salvation, being obedient to Christ, not because anyone else is in the room, but because Christ is in us. And so church, I hope that you would always remember that here, that it is not if I am here with you, but that Christ is in you. That is what matters most because how you obey Christ and treat others when no one else is looking matters. And so again and again, Paul is contending for the believer's unity and for the believer's obedience as unto Christ and in Christ, and always before Christ. And so understand, regardless if I am here with you or I am absent from you, it is not the call of the Christian to conduct themselves in unity or to obey only when the pastor is present. That's not when we're to exercise uh, obedience and submission, but always because Christ is forever present in and among the believers. And so really then the question for us is, does the way we act and live outside the view of pastors and elders and church members show that we obey Christ? Does the way that we live outside the view of others show that we obey Christ? See church, do not miss the application in this little verse, verse 12, that you should not obey because of who it is that leads you pastorally now and today or or what influences you. That's not the reason you should obey. You should obey because of Christ in you, Christ with you. We should obey and follow the example of Christ who, as Paul says, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. And so, dear friends, there is no obedience in the Christian life apart from Christ who was humble and obedient on your behalf. There's no way for you and I to, to, to live out obedience if we're not in Christ. And so come to him, obey him, that you may also work out your salvation. See, this is what we find Paul continue to say in verse 12, that in obedience, we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now understand, this is not Paul telling the church to work so as to earn our salvation. I mean, such a statement would absolutely contradict the gospel that Paul faithfully preached. But really, this is what I meant earlier by how Paul is quick to say that we are not saved by anything we do, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But then at the same time, he is often calling Christians to live out their faith, to persevere in life, in the life that is Christ's. And so again, just as Luther said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith is never alone. See, this is what Paul means here, that we don't work to be saved, we work because we are saved. And so this is not the work for their salvation in the sense of accomplishing it, but to work out their salvation. It is to put on display the fruit of salvation which is the work of God in us. See, simply put, we are to be working out what God has already worked in us through Christ. And so even a simple way that we know that Paul is not talking about a way to earn our salvation is because in the text, the instructions and the exhortations are not to all people everywhere. They are without a doubt addressed to those who are already saved through a living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, remember, he is speaking to his beloved, he says, and he is calling them to obey. This is not the language of Paul in his evangelistic ways. This is Paul writing to the church, to believers. And so when Paul speaks of this working out our own salvation, he's referring to what the Christian does because of salvation. And so Paul's point is that salvation once received must be put into practice through obedience. That he goes on to tell us, in fact, that we need to do this in fear and in trembling. And understand, Paul's idea was not that we should live out our Christian lives with a constant sense of being scared and having terror in us like someone who is terrified of the dark or has a, a, a fear when, when a shady character is, is about. That's not what Paul's contending for. But Paul is saying we should live with an awe and a reverence of the God, of the God that saved us. And that we should also have a sober outlook on how hopeless we are without his saving. I mean, think about this, church. If God withheld his grace and chose not to save us, we would not be saved at all. We should have not a fear of that, but such an awe and a reverence of that God who chose by his own desire to save. 
And so when we live out the Christian life, we must do so holding a very healthy awe and reverence for the holiness of God. I mean, always remembering that he is God Almighty. I mean, think about how much this changes our worship. I mean, do you understand that when we come into this space, who we are worshiping is a holy God? It's, it's, not, like, it's not like evening potluck with the clan. It's not hanging out, and not that clan, but it's, it, is, it is not a gathering of just family. It is not this time of mere socializing. It is before a holy God who we find in scripture, some trembled before him. Some understood they were unworthy before him. Sometimes I think we don't think much of that, and we should that we should think much of him and his word rather than much of ourselves. Because see, living this way takes away all arrogance in our lives. It causes us to be aware of of pride and take away any self-righteousness we think we have when we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, remembering that God is a mighty and righteous God. And so then this type of working out is what is often called sanctification. It is the growing in Christ and being more and more and more like him. And so remember, we don't become Christians by doing good works. It's by the grace of God, by faith in Jesus Christ, that we become Christians. But then once we become Christians, then we have the need to grow in our Christian lives to grow in the good works that we do. And this is why I have said before and many times over the years, we do not work to be saved. We work because we are saved. And so we must never make the mistake of thinking that becoming a Christian is the end result. That is not the end result. If it were, God would end your fleshly life then and there. At the point of conversion, he'd just take you home. But we need to understand it is only the beginning. It is only the beginning. Once we become a Christian, only then can we begin to live out the Christian life. And so this is why Paul said in the first chapter, before beginning to really address the church, saying, to live is Christ. Paul made the entire definition of life as unto Christ. And so there's great responsibility we have to work out our salvation, to faithfully grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, this is something I fear many Christians today may not realize or admit, that where it is all of God's work in salvation, we are to be working out that salvation. So it is our work he does in us where we then grow in Christian maturity and obedience. And so in other words, the the believer must finish, must carry to the end. They must apply this to the fullest effect. All of this work that is actually already given by God. And so simply put, we must work out what God in his grace has worked in. See, never think that when you have repented and believed upon the gospel, that it is simply fire insurance. 
Don't, don't simply think that, where you can then go and live however you want. No, that is not what the Bible says. That is not what the Bible teaches. That is something that is often called carnal Christianity, and there is no place in Scripture that teaches that kind of life. I mean, we saw last week, as Paul declared, your life is not your own. If you are going to live, live it unto Christ. That doesn't leave much room for you to call shots. And so Paul makes that point again and again. In fact, he would argue with the idea of carnal Christianity in Romans 6. In the first two verses, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul very emphatically responds, By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Church, Paul contends here in Romans 6 and in our text that if we are raised with Christ in newness of life, then we must live that life in obedience unto Christ. And so let me ask you, are you working out your salvation? Are you working out what God has worked in you? See, Paul is contending for a faith that works. Not a lazy or or lax faith that neglects Christ, but one that looks to Christ's conduct and works. See, this is why he began in chapter two by talking first about Christ's humility and Christ's work. That it is the example before us of how to humbly work. And so are you following the example of Christ? Are you looking to the interests of others, as as Paul encouraged the church to do in verse four? Are you humbly and obediently serving the body of Christ? And understand, I, I mean in both ordinary and extraordinary means. I'm talking about serving in the, in the kids' church and with the worship team and with the ushers and greeter and, and serving coffee and, and handing out programs. But listen, Paul isn't going to list those serving opportunities, but he is talking about how faithful you work and you serve as a believer. So think about that. Does the way you serve at this church reflect the work that God has done in you? Understand, this is not a shameless plug for you to serve anywhere. I don't have a list in my back pocket of the 10 ways you should serve, but Paul's contending that we're active in this passage. See, on one hand, I'm talking about serving as the church gathered, how we serve one another during this time. But I'm also, and I would say even much more so, talking about how you treat believers and how you conduct your life as a Christian? Are you working out what God has worked in you? See, really, church, this is a sign of a true believer. It shows in the fruit of your life what the root of your faith is. Now, let me for a moment just encourage you in something, that if you feel the sting of conviction in the word, in the preaching of the word ever, and you question one thing, Let it be your obedience, not your saving. Because really, church, what a beautiful confidence we have in the word of God that Christ welcomes all who come to him. 
that Christ receives all who will hear his voice, who will repent and believe upon him. And even as we learned earlier this year in John 8, that all who abide in him are his disciples. So church, even in our repentance, there is assurance that God is working in us. What he is calling us to work out. I mean, even one of the things that uh, upon meeting with a gentleman a few months ago, him sharing that, that one of the things that he loves is how the Holy Spirit has taught him to hate sin and love the Savior. He said, that is a thing of my life before Christ. I never hated sin. I've begun to hate it. And he's teaching me all the more to be killing it instead of it killing me. And so friends, if you are a believer here this morning and you struggle with the assurance of your salvation, look to Christ in the word. Look to Christ in the word. Abide in him. Live in him. Because salvation is not found in any other place or person. It is founded upon Christ alone who calls and comforts his sheep. See, this is of utmost importance. And I think really why many struggle to have assurance in their faith, why many believe that they can lose their salvation is because many Christians have their understanding of assurance founded on the constantly changing emotions of their hearts rather than on the unchanging word of Christ. That's where your root of your faith belongs not in the constantly changing waves and emotions of your heart, but rooted in the word of Christ. And so brothers and sisters, if you find comfort in anything I've preached today, remember that when I say we must work out what God in his grace has worked in, it is that the fruit of our faith, our our works reveal the root, the saving faith. And so when you are working out your salvation, when your conduct reflects your confession, it is because of what God has worked in you. That not of yourselves, but in Christ. So take comfort in his work because it is by his work and his grace that we do any work at all. So take comfort in that. See, Paul tells us this in verse 13 that it is by God's work and his grace that we do any work at all. Paul says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, here again, he gives the reason why Christians must work out their salvation with fear and trembling because God is working in them. See, He showed earlier in the example of Christ in in verses one through 11, this importance of working out in humble submission. And Paul reassures the Philippian believers that they do not will or work on their own. They do not will or work on their own, but actually their wills and their actions are the very arenas where God's own power is working. See, notice how Paul has no difficulty speaking of man's responsibility and God's sovereignty between these two verses in our text. I mean, his aim is to remind the believer what they are responsible to work out. But in that, 
they are always responsible to God and his sovereign will. I mean, understand, this is a long debated issue where many view as though man's responsibility and God's sovereignty are opposed in scripture and divided in theology. But that's not so as we find in the text. I mean, we very plainly see both in view in in Paul's writing. I mean, it's clear to see man's responsibility when Paul wrote earlier in verse 12 that we must work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And also he continues now in verse 13, by both revealing and reminding us of God's sovereignty in all of life and salvation, that it is God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so just as I said earlier, that we must work out what God in his grace has worked in, we could also say in this section, because of what God in his grace has worked in, we must always remember he is sovereign over what we must work out. I mean, we find this language all throughout scripture, that it is God alone that we do anything at all. It is by his grace, it is by his will, it is by his sovereignty that we do anything at all. I mean, even when Paul was addressing the men of Athens in Acts chapter 17, verse 28, he told them, in him, in God, we live and move and have our being. That leaves no room for anything or anyone else. And so it is very consistent of Paul here when writing to the church in Philippi that he would tell them, it's God who works in us according to his will. But see, why is this important? What is Paul's aim in putting God's sovereign work over ours? See, really it is that as God is sovereign over both salvation and the believers working it out, then all glory belongs completely to God alone and not at all to us. In fact, it removes all pride. It removes all praise unto ourselves for whatever reason. Even Calvin writes in commentating on this verse, he says, this is the true engine for bringing down all haughtiness, the sword for putting an end to all pride. That here, here in this text, we are taught that we can do nothing except through the grace of God alone. I mean, from beginning to end, do not miss this church This is how the life of the Christian is defined, through the grace of God alone. And so even in salvation, it is God's work in us. We were saved because of his work, not because of our work. And our whole salvation and life is the product of God's work. Understand, you didn't do anything to earn it or deserve it. You just reached out your hand and you trusted God to give you something you didn't deserve. And in fact, it was a gift and not your gift, not my gift, his gift. It was not done by yourself or by your works and your life and your work as a saved sinner now is the result of God's work, not your own. It is God's grace that has saved you 
and that is absolutely essential for the Christian life. So let me say this, for those of you that are here that are not in Christ, if you don't understand that God alone saves through Jesus Christ, then you will not find salvation. If you do not come to Christ, there is no one else for you to go to. And if you think that you are in a position where you can help yourself, then you do not understand the gravity of the condition you are in. Really then, the only hope that you have is to abandon yourself and to cry out to God saying, Jesus, I am a sinner in need of a savior. I need you and you alone. Church, all of this is that we are saved by grace and in the Christian life, we are sustained by grace. All of us should be sure to take note of that, that the whole life of the believer is by grace. I mean, does, has it any effect on your very soul when we sing the words, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand? When we sing the song, I rest on his unchanging grace, if you are in Christ, it will not change. It is unchanging grace. On him we stand. And so listen, even the good works that we do, it displays the glorious grace of God and his works in us. And so let me ask you again, church, are you working out what God has worked in you? I mean, remember, these works are not the root of our faith. They are the fruit of our faith. They're not what bring us into relationship with God. They're what come out of relationship with God. And so consider the life of a Christian because it is all about being more and more like Christ, being in Christ, where we love the things that he loves. We begin to hate the things that he hates. We live the way that he lives where we are committed to what he is committed to and we give ourselves to what he gave himself to. And what did Paul have to say about that? Look at verse eight again. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so this morning, church, as we come to a close, consider the humility and the obedience of Christ and how that calls us, that really demands of us to work out our salvation in fear and in trembling before a holy and sovereign God who works in us by his grace. And so are you working out what God has worked in you? This is a great call of the church that we would share the gospel, that we would display the gospel in the way that we live, in the way that we act, in the way that we treat one another. Could you imagine if we came in here Sunday after Sunday thinking of the idea, how can I put others above myself? How can I care for others more faithfully? How can I do that in my home? How can I put my spouse's needs above my needs? You're thinking, that's ridiculous. 
So go to verse eight. And being found in his in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Who has displayed the greatest humility and obedience to you? Christ. So if you are a Christian, are you working out what God has worked in you? I encourage you, ask that question. Think on that question this week. Let's pray.